0: All right, I'm going to start on page 23. We're going to talk about the Davidic covenant and the New Covenant, and then we're going to jump into kind of a summary of where the covenants leave us today and how we should um, at least consider them, I think, in light of Israel. So we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 40 minutes. I hope it'll be beneficial to you. So I'm on page 23. Uh, And then next week, what I hope to do is talk a little bit about hermeneutics, um, and that would be kind of the study of interpretation and language. And and I think ways that we should be thinking about the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, as we come to them. So uh, if you're with me on page 23 of the Davidic covenant, uh, David has promised to build that temple. And here's what the Lord says, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 4, the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but I've been Moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So the Lord's honored because the temple is going to be built. Look down into verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts. By the way, that word host kind of means armies. So, so it's, a, it's a word for sovereignty and power. Uh, Thus says the Lord of armies. Maybe it would be a good way to translate it. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a print over my people Israel, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. And just notice what's being said there. God is giving them a what? A place that they will be planted I think as we consider the idea of, of dispensationalism, one of the concerns we have is that these types of words in the scripture are just ignored or made light of. What's God's promise to David? You'll have a place, okay? So, so the Lord promises that he will have a place, and it's a place for whom? My people, Israel this is, I, I'm not trying to be hard on you, but it seems like that's fairly, uh, a, a fairly simple observation. And I will plant them there, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? Forever. As we look forward to the Messiah and we see the promises fulfilled in Christ that are given here, we have a very clear call to recognize that this is an offspring according to his body, right? It's I mean, like it's hard to take that any other way. And then we see the fulfillment in Christ very clearly with Mary and Joseph, and the lineage is given in both Matthew and Luke. There's a reason these lineages, we don't like lineages, do we? Tell me that when you read through the book of Numbers that you carefully go through on your double space journaling Bible and are journaling all those you know names. You're not, right? Like, like, we read through those and we fly. Those are so precious to Israel in the sense of proving that they are part of the people of God, connecting themselves to the forefathers, to... Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to their tribes. So we come to Matthew and we come to Luke, they're not merely just heritage. They're proof of God's promise-keeping. In fact, their particular promise-keeping value is connecting to David and I think ultimately to Eve, right? Like the descendant that that comes from her is going to crush the head of the serpent and then you trace that blessing through the lineages in Genesis and then down into Numbers. Then you come to Matthew and look where they're correlating these together, and it ultimately culminates in a literal fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So so that that's recognized by most Bible scholars, but what's not appreciated is that these promises also connect a literal people and a literal place. And so I think it's helpful to, to see those and kind of... Um, Put a pin in them in the sense of where we're thinking through Old Testament promises leading us into the New Testament era that we live in today. So we come to, to page 24, covenant parties. Promises are made to David. They include provisions that God would be a father to him and he shall be a son. Um, I would see this covenant, I mean, I'm not sure the Bible's super clear on when it's ratified, but probably with the... Um, Sanctifying of the temple and the, and the sacrificial slaughtering that Solomon does. Remember, covenants are ratified through sacrificial blood. Um, that you see Solomon actually bringing to fulfillment kind of the Davidic lines, um, making a house for God. He's not, he's not dwelling in a tent. Solomon sacrifices the animals. God restates these covenant promises that he had given to David. I think that's probably where you see that covenant secured right? Like, you can, ha- you can be in an agreement like an escrow, and when you actually sign like the 150 pages of documents and the money transfers, now you get the keys and it's recorded. You know, but the promises anchored in those papers and finally recorded with the county are usually agreed upon 30 or 45 days prior to that. I think you probably see something similar with David, where God promises these things and it's almost like he's in escrow. And Solomon secures that uh, that'd be my take on on how that timeline goes but you come to page 24 promises offspring he will establish his kingdom my love will not depart from his son which is so you come to the new testament what is what does god say the father say to jesus christ as he's getting baptized this is my beloved son i think sometimes in in those texts we should recognize that there's a lot being said Maybe we're not seeing all of it. Uh, then your kingdom will be made sure for how long? Forever. Okay, so, so let's just go do a little bit of interpretive work here. What's the kingdom that David would think of? What's he king over? Israel? Where is he king over Israel? Israel? I mean, you could say Israel again, but we would think geographically there's a place, right? We'd say Jerusalem's a capital. He took that from the Jebusites, and he reigns over that area, that Palestinian promised land, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, and actually on on the other side of the Jordan as well, north to south. He doesn't have the full extent promised yet, right? He doesn't own all that had been promised to Abraham, but he's got a lot of it as the turf that the people dwell in. Right, so God says, I will plant you in this place, and this people will be yours, and you'll have uh, your son as king. How long is that kingdom going to last? Forever. I just want to make uh, uh, another considerate point here that's not part of this promise, but I, I, every once in a while I hear people speak as though the Old Testament didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. Like the Old Testament believers didn't have the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit alive and active? Working within the hearts and lives of believers in the Old Testament? Yes. Right? Like, can an unregenerate person do anything good without the Holy Spirit? So, what do you know is going on in the Old Testament when you see men and women act by faith and do wonderful service to their king in heaven? What do you know is operative in their hearts and lives? Or I should say, who do you know? The Holy Spirit. So I think sometimes people would view the New Covenant um, ministry or perhaps even just church ministry as somehow so distinctly different in that realm that they're missing the actual difference. The difference isn't the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the breadth of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I think you see this promise fulfilled somewhat in Luke 1, or at least the, the, the promise beginning to unfold is probably a better way for me to say that. <clears throat> the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High and the Lord will give to him, what? The throne of his father David and he will reign, that's future, over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, even in in." luke as the angels prophesying to mary that there's this expectation of a clear fulfillment in the uh, life of jesus lamentations 519 just in contrast your throne endures to all generations is speaking about the lord's throne in heaven that is a distinctly different realm than jacob's inheritance right okay moving on covenant conditions god gives david no conditions for fulfillment Therefore, the covenant is unconditional. Which, if you look at the descendants of David, man, if they could disqualify themselves, they did. But that doesn't seem to be, I mean, David's sons are not exactly noble. And even Solomon, he was definitely a mixed bag, wasn't he? Okay, so the new covenant then. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's probably the most explicit new covenant text, but I I think you look through Ezekiel, Isaiah, Isaiah you see references to this new covenant that God promises. So let me read that passage from Jeremiah, page 25 on the top there. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them from the hand, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. Now, let me ask you what's the difference between this covenant? And the covenant with Moses, or the Mosaic covenant. It's not really with Moses, it's with Israel. What's the difference? What was that, Heidi? Okay, something's written on their hearts. The law is written on their hearts, okay? How is that different? Okay, good. All right, anyone else have any thoughts on, I mean, because I think Heidi's on the right track, so maybe amplify or expand what she's saying. This is significant. So you go back to the Mosaic Covenant, God gives all of these laws, we call maybe stipulations of this, of this contract or covenant language. You do this, I will bless you. You don't do this, or you do the reverse. You, you sin, you rebel against me, and I will curse you. And, and all of these blessings and curses are listed as part of the law. What's not given as part of that covenant treaty is a guarantee that all the parties on Israel's side have a new heart. This would be a little bit like me telling my son, and every once in a while I do do uh, things like this with my kids. I mess around with them, and they say like, something like, Dad, I can dunk a basketball. And I'll say, well, I'll tell you what. If without any aids, ladders, chairs, et cetera, you can dunk a basketball on an official hoop, then I will pay for Chick-fil-A lunch for a year. Now I know very well that at 10 years old, cannot yet dunk a basketball. And so I've given him this goal that's well beyond his capacity to accomplish, right? Knowing that he cannot successfully snooker me out of my Chick-fil-A promise, right? So God gives this expectation to Israel. And I think when you look in Romans 3.23, the ultimate expression of the law is the very glory of Christ. Well, who can match that? And the answer is none of us without the aid of the Holy Spirit have any capacity or power in ourselves to please God. Well, the Old Testament law did not secure for everyone a transformed heart. How many people in the New Covenant have a transformed heart? From the what to the what. So the new covenant comes not only with an expectation of obedience, dunk the ball on a full-size hoop, but the power to do it. And that makes the Israelite who is hearing God say, I will make a new covenant with you, long for the better covenant. Because they're, they're being asked by God to do something And not all Israel is saved. Not all Israel is indwelt. Not all Israel has a regenerate heart. And so there's this recognition that nationally there's no ability for them to accomplish the national hope that God's given them in the Mosaic Covenant. And I think that's why you see in Hebrews talking about a better covenant. It's not as though the Mosaic Covenant was a bad covenant, but it's a covenant that didn't include with it provisions for power. The new covenant does. And it's prolific. I think this is also a helpful point. Who is this covenant made with? Is it made with regenerate people or Israel? Do you catch it? In order to get into the new covenant, what do you have to be? Maybe I should say better. In order to be a party of the covenant, who do you have to be? Israel or Judah? And if you are, when this new covenant is agreed upon by both parties, you are, if you're Israel or Judah, regenerate. And I think we've actually flipped this in in some of the discussions we have so that now we would say something like this. In the church age, you'll hear people talk about us being new covenant people. It's hard for me to pull this apart, but I just say it's sloppy and it confuses, who are the new covenant parties? Israel and Judah. Is the church ever delineated here? No, it's not. Now, that doesn't mean that we have no benefits from the new covenant. I, I don't know the, the best way to sort through this. Uh, two of the men I look to for a lot of my dispensational thinking don't say it the same way, but I think here is a helpful, helpful analogy that doesn't answer all of the questions I have, but at least in some ways I think can be part of the way we work through this. Uh, my children are not part of my marriage covenant, are they? No, they're not party to my marriage covenant. Do they receive many of the blessings of my marriage covenant? And in fact, one of the reasons many people don't get divorced is not because of their loyalty to their covenant spouse. But because they recognize the benefits and the detriments to their children in that covenant or dissolution of it. And so they stay married. I I think as, as the church saints, we see new covenant language in the New Testament. Like, for instance, in the Lord's Supper, what do you see us doing? This is the blood of the new covenant. And if we're sloppy, what we say is, therefore, I am in and party to the new covenant the way Israel was. You will not find that anywhere in the text of scripture like that. I think we have to be very cautious that we don't just jump to that conclusion. I think what we can better say and honestly say is that we are recipients of the blessings that are part of the new covenant. That is, my children are recipients of blessings that are part of the covenant I have with my wife without saying I'm party to the covenant. Now, it could be that when we get to the end of the age Jesus will tell us that we are, in fact, going to be included in the new covenant. At that point, I'm not going to argue with the king. But it's not in the scripture. And so I, I want to be careful that I don't take and rework a covenant language uh, statement and include myself in it because I don't know how to correlate the other parts well. I think it's better to say something like this. I'm a participant of the blessings. So my wife will kind of push on me every once in a while because I'll use technical language language. And it goes right by most people's ears. So you'll hear me when I introduce the Lord's Supper, things like that. You'll not hear me say things like, we are party to the new covenant. You'll hear me say something like, we receive blessings that are part of the new covenant. And again, I realize that for, you know, the 300 people in the room, like two people go, oh, whoa, he didn't say I'm part of the new covenant. The rest of you are like, yes, thank you, Jesus and you take the, the cup. And and really, we're trying to be cautious as a church not to say more or different than the scriptures say. Um, and, and again, we're trying, to, we're trying to be thoughtful in those areas as we work through scriptures. So, we look, at, look at the New Covenant. Um, there's a recent book out uh, uh, that ha- deals with uh, different views on Old Testament theology and Old Testament scriptures. I've taken um, from Mark Snowberger, who is a friend although i don't he never taught me he's now a professor at my alma mater and he he listed six benefits of the new covenant god will transform the hearts of every living israelite israel becomes careful to obey god's rules israel will be forgiven god will regather israel into the promised land the whole created realm of animals weather earth etc will participate in the new age and Gentiles will come to the land through Israel as they fulfill their priestly role. I'm just going to make at, at least a, an observational point here. Uh, maybe I'll just make two. If you go to Isaiah 49, the suffering servant is called True Israel. I shouldn't say True Israel. He didn't say, use the word true. He calls him Israel. Who's 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 the Messiah? Jesus. So, like, in my notes, I initially started typing Jesus, and I'm like, eh, I really shouldn't do that. I need to be more careful even in my notes. Okay, so the Messiah, the suffering servant, this future servant of God is called Israel. And I think that's Isaiah 49.3. In Isaiah 49.4, 5, and 6, he is going to redeem and rescue and restore Israel. Okay, I want you to consider that for a moment because what, what then you have as part of this new covenant hope that Israel's being given is that This personified Israel servant, who's called Israel, is going to be a servant to God, and his service is going to rescue national Israel. Now, here's my point. Jesus, as a personified expression of Israel, maybe we could see as the true expression of Israel, or like the ideal Israelite, maybe, doesn't replace Israel or erase or clean out of God's program in the future the national people of Israel. Um, and I, I think, again, the New Covenant promises become somewhat silly if the party to the promise isn't existing. Um, number, number two in terms of observations as, as we consider these texts Israel is seen as a nation through whom these blessings come to the rest of the nations. So, uh, I want to say Isaiah 2, where, where you have Israel serving the other nations. Well, it would in- indicate that, A, there are national identities still going on. Like, somehow in the church we've gotten that, the idea that nations don't exist anymore. Well, that's That's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture in saying there's no distinction among us is that we shouldn't look at one another as superior or inferior on the basis of ethnicity or national identity in terms of salvation. However, we can also recognize that there are still nations that exist in parallel and in distinction ethnically or geographically. And that, that's not to say that we don't have a shared salvation that's fully equal based on faith and in the redeeming grace of Christ. So Israel, and like, again, I think Isaiah 2, other passages as well, I think at the, um, oh, I'm not going to remember it. But it's basic, basically talking about the kingdom age where if they don't give loyalty to Israel and come to Israel to worship, the, the king will punish them. Which indicates, like, hey, you got to come to Israel, do worship as a nation. So Egypt or Syria are mentioned by name in the text I'm thinking of. I just can't remember the reference. Um, so you have national identities, national. Uh, you, you saw this idea that there are individualized and distinct nations. Which means we shouldn't just lose Israel as a distinct nation. Right? Like, like if, if everyone else is part of a nation, except for a group of random people that we can't call Israel, Well, why would we do that? What are they a part of or party to? So if you have Egypt, Syria, and again, they wouldn't have thought in terms of our modern nations, but if we had modern nations and everyone's a part of a nation, wouldn't you think that the descendants of of Jacob would also still be identified as a nation? I I think you would have to logically say yes. Uh, Then again, um, sometimes we are more committed to theology than anything. Or our theology, I should say, page twenty six, summary of covenants. Just, I, I just put this there because sometimes in all of that kind of meandering talk I just gave, you've lost sight of it. Just kind of identify the parties and and the blessings received. Yes. Oh, that's a thank you for your horrible. And hard question. Um, so, so let me see if I can clarify for anyone who might not have heard. Your question is perhaps, and I want to make sure I'm saying it right, how do the previous Israelites, the unregenerate, unsaved Israelites during the time of Jesus relate to the new covenant? I would say the same way that most of Jeremiah and Isaiah's readers would have related to it. They aren't part of it because it has not been guaranteed, ratified, and secured yet. Okay, so like the promises have been laid out, but the parties haven't signed the paper yet. Does that make sense? Uh, so I think Jeremiah lays it out. I think Christ is the sacrificial blood of the covenant. Right? I think that's what it means when it talks about this is the blood of the new covenant. That's language that was used when Moses sprinkled the, the tabernacle with the blood of the covenant that, that he had just brokered with God. I shouldn't say that, that God had brokered through him with Israel. Um, I'm I'm still up in the air a little bit about what this means because there is oath language that has yet to be said by Israel. So you go to some of those passages, and there are statements like this. I will say to them, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. We have yet to see Israel and Judah do that. And and so I, I think there is at least, we should be concerned that one of the parties has not come to the, the covenant table and signed yet, and so the whole covenant is not yet active in its full sense. There might be blessings already kind of accruing to us, but they're not part of the covenant being secured, signed, and delivered. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's the best way to say it. I'm not always... Not always precise like I want to be as I'm thinking through out. You know, like, thinking out loud is always a dangerous game. It's not fully formed. All right, any other questions before we move on? James? I would, I would think so, James. I, I think probably somewhere. So if you, if you look at the timeline, when Jesus Christ comes back, there seems to be a gap between the start of the millennium and his return in, in the Battle of Armageddon. And there's something called the, the, like the wedding supper of the Lamb. I, I think that might be where you actually see the full weight of the new covenant launched. hmm I don't have a great answer for you, but I think I think we're working under a couple assumptions. I, like, even reading that, what happens to new children born in that new age that are part of Israel ethnically? But I think probably you see in Zechariah, when he they will look on him whom they've pierced, it seems as though if that's part of the culmination of this promises, that at least in that moment all Israel is either saved or dead. Because there's a huge, I mean... I mean That seems to be the point of of that text and and that passage where you have Zechariah indicating that a lot of Israel is receiving the wrath of God and has been judged, and the others that are remaining look on him whom they pierced, they mourn for him, and they receive him. I don't know if in perpetuity in the kingdom that means regeneration of all ethnic Israel at all times is what he means. But it may mean something more like all Israel will be and is saved, and they all, because of his presence, know him. I mean, again, he's physically present in the kingdom. And, and the, it seems to be the outpouring of the Spirit is more pervasive than anything we've ever experienced even in the church age. All right, any other questions? Yes. Yes. No, I, I think he's talking about the New Covenant. I, so the analogy I gave Heidi, that's a, those are great questions. I think that's where we all struggle. Because nowhere in Scripture are, are church people, as church people, given kind of this legal, this legal language inclusion into the New Covenant in, in those Jeremiah-Isaiah passages. So we come to the New Testament, and Jesus expands on his ministry both to the church and I think when you see like in Romans what his plan is for Israel, I think we need to be careful that we don't try to pencil our name in as though we've replaced Israel, okay? The example I gave may not be an example that works all the way around, but your two children are beneficiaries of your marriage covenant without being party to the covenant. Does that make sense? So I, I I think we ought to recognize that we are not on any document in the scriptures as party to the new covenant, as direct from God to us. God will give us this, and we must do this, or respond a certain way, or even in an unconditional sense. What we have in the Lord's Supper is, is at least cloudy language. It doesn't eliminate that, but it doesn't demand it either, and I think, I think a lot of people are saying, oh, we're at that covenant table, signing that covenant in the Lord's Supper, and that's actually not what we're saying. That's not what the scripture says. I think we ought to recognize, though, that the covenant promises, which ultimately, I think you look at the Abrahamic covenant and others, do include a lot of blessings to a lot of people, right? Through this offspring, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations aren't part of the covenant, but they receive the overflow of blessings from the covenant. Does that make sense? So should the nations that are blessed in the covenant of Abraham, should they celebrate the covenant of Abraham? But are they party to it? Let me restate, I think, a better way to say that. In order for someone to have been, let's, let's use air quotes here, included in that covenant, they would have had to nationalize and immigrate, basically, both civilly and religiously. So like a Rahab type of character in the Old Testament becomes part of Israel. Does that make sense? When you use the word sojourner, right. Yeah yeah yeah. So I'm just I'm just clarifying the term. That might be like that might be like um James There there are about six positions that dispensationalists take on how we relate to the New Covenant. Right, or without displacing national Israel. Again, I I think there are about six ways that, like, uh, Michael Flock in his book identifies that we connect to the New Covenant. And, and what I'm trying to say, Heidi, is actually not to pick one of those as much as to say we need to be careful that we don't make the New Testament say something it doesn't. Which, so maybe maybe a, a more generic way w- would be we are part of the household that's receiving the blessings of the New Covenant. The New Testament is a little bit cloudy on how we're connected to, to the to the giver of the blessings who owns the house. Does that make sense? So, so I'm not saying we don't get New Covenant blessings. I'm trying to, to say we need to be careful that we don't make the scriptures, we, we don't presume the scriptures say something they don't. So and that's where I would say sometimes people mistake blessings received for being on the paper of the contract itself. And I think you know really clearly with the marriage analogy that that's not the case with your children. And you're clear as a bell on that. When we come to the New Testament and we see maybe we're we're part of that. Like we are receiving the blessings and we're like children to a marriage covenant. Well, we're under the priesthood of Christ who is the priest of the new covenant. So I'm not trying to like launch us into like the ether, like we're not connected to anything. What I'm saying is our connection in the new covenant would be as God has kept his promises to Israel and all the blessings flow to the nations from Israel, that's, that means we're recipients of the blessings of the new covenant. It just doesn't mean we're Israel. Are you with me now? Okay. Well, why don't we talk later? And, and then we can kind of hammer that out a little more before we just. You're, you're welcome for bringing confusion. Um, no, no, I, I'm saying that to, I wish I would have said it better. Um, so we go through the summary of covenants. Let me, let me go to page 26 here at the bottom there, page uh, on Romans 9. I think Romans 9 through 11 are really valuable for us as we understand how the New Testament church was to understand Israel's role today. And part of the concern for the Roman church there was it looks as though God's promises to Israel have not been kept. What's Paul's response? Is God a promise keeping God? Has he failed in his promises to Israel? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, look, at, look, it's actually Romans 11.1. 1. I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means has God rejected Israel. Paul's answer, no way. He has not rejected Israel. And, and it's becoming more and more consistent, even among those who are reformed, to acknowledge that this means ethnic Israel. Um, I do think there's a little bit of, um, I, I think they don't want to see that it's national Israel, as in the nation. They want to say it's jewish people but paul is actually really clear he's using israel not jew and he uses jew throughout the book of romans when he comes to romans 9 through 11 he's very careful to say israel not jew Um, look at romans 9 really three through five says it but verse four particularly they are israelites and to them belong what adoption glory now what does he say the covenants that's present tense So he's dealing with the fact that the church is mostly Gentile. So what is God's plan for Israel? And he's saying, hey, you need to understand where God's at with Israel. And he says, present tense, they own the covenants. That would include all the covenants we just worked through. Who owns them? Who's party to them? Israel. Notice he doesn't say, and so are we. He just simply says that Israel owns them. The giving of the law, worship, the promises. So so we have all of this is is very Israelite. Then we come to chapter 11, and he says these promises are not somehow lost. He's really clearly talking to a physical, national, ethnic Israel. All right. Then you come to Romans 11. At the end of Romans 11, he's talking about the Gentile church and its relationship to. I think the Abrahamic blessings. And he's using that vine analogy in like verses twenty through twenty-four. It says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so how long is Israel going to remain mostly or partially hardened to God's grace? until a full number of Gentiles comes in. When you look in Revelation, and and it seems to be like the martyrs are saying how long the same answer is given until the the full number is met. Uh, So in God's plan and in his sovereignty, there is a particular number, and when it's met, God enacts the next stage of his program. But it's when this full number of Gentiles come in Then all Israel will be saved, as as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, my understanding of the gifts and calling of God, it goes back to those initial statements of these are Israel's, the covenants, the promises, these are Israel's. And notice how he ends. They are what? They are irrevocable. Now, Paul is saying this as someone who's living in the church age. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He sees the ethnic mix in the church, and he recognizes the question might be, all of these promises, the eternal kingdom to David, uh, the land to Abraham, the promises of rescuing Israel in the new covenant, did these all get washed away? Have they somehow been subsumed in the church, and Israel as a national group of people is somehow just mixed in the church, and now its identity and ethnic solidarity is gone? And his answer is, the character of God says no. Right? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable because God has said he will do this, and that's where Hebrews says, by two unchangeable things, the oath of God and his own unchanging character these things cannot be taken away from us so we have we have basically paul making the same argument as the author of hebrews that ultimately god's credibility is on the line if we are to lose israel now no one generally speaking disagrees with what i said they just change who israel is but that's what a covenant theologian would do is say we are now inaugurated israel in some sense I don't think Paul agrees. I'm going with Paul on this one. Yes. Yes. Huh? Huh? Right. Abrahamic promises. Like blessings. The blessings from Abraham's covenant as opposed to what well but okay so if we do that marissa like galatians 3 which says that after covenants made it cannot be edited or altered like that we scripture says once a covenant's made it's made right so if you go to galatians 3 that type of, of fast and loose play with a covenant where we, we edit the participants after it's been secured is, is the whole purpose of why you covenant being violated. But like if I, if I buy a home, I give a $100,000 down payment on a $500,000 home, and when I go to secure it on the day escrow closes, and they're like, I'm sorry, another party is you. But they like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I, I'm me. You, you can't replace me we've we've, we've gotten this contract all worked out. I'm this person with this social security number, and they're like, well, no, they have your name, so they're you. Like, no, that's not how this thing works. A contract is written to secure two parties, benefits or obligations, right? That's why Galatians says that after it's written, I I have it right there in the notes. I think we might want to read it. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant. Now, his point is, Man-made covenants even include this. How much more are the covenants with God? No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one. I think that's probably um, Galatia, or Excuse me, Genesis 22, where he uses a singular pronoun after the word offspring. That would be the clearest reference in Scripture. So, so, Marissa, I am sympathetic to the idea that somehow we're included in, I'll use the word benefits again. I'm not trying to minimize Romans 11 with that, but I'm trying to do justice to both Galatians, which says don't mess with covenants once they've been ratified, as well as do justice to Romans that says we're included in this, this olive um, branch, right? We're, we're, we're connected to it. So in what way are we connected to it? I would, I would say, and I'm getting this from Michael Vlock, he says, we're participating in the blessings promised in the Abrahamic covenant, which is that through Abraham's offspring, the nations will be blessed. And so I, I think we see a fulfillment of that in Romans 11. We're blessed just as God promised in Genesis. Yes, David. Yes. Yes? Well, the point of the parent, please don't don't make the parent-child analogy run all the way through all of this. I'm trying to suggest to us that it helps us understand how we can receive blessings from a covenant without being a party to it. Please don't, like, try to work this through every other thing I'm saying. That's all I'm saying is we need to be careful that we don't do this. I receive blessings that are from the new covenant, therefore I'm a party to it. Because every child in here, or I shouldn't say every child in here, but many children in here receive many blessings from a covenant that they're not party to. Like it happens all the time. So, so the logic that says receive blessings, therefore I was participating in the covenant is nonsense. Does that make sense? You with me on that? That's all I'm saying. So someone like Ruth, who, who immigrates in and becomes devoted to Yahweh actually becomes part of Israel. I think that's fairly clear. But we're talking about Old Testament Israel, so she's, she's actually what, the great-grandmother of David? She's in the Messianic line. She's really clearly part of the people of God in the Old Testament named Israel. Even though ethnically, she didn't start that way, she seems to bind herself. I, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, civil and religiously. She just joins herself to them. Israel's Not doing that today. You know what I'm saying? Yes, Haley. so your your point would be, they take Israel in Jeremiah as not Israel. I'm really trying to understand Haley. I'm not trying to make up right so 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 my point back, and I think this is where I find. I'm I'm not not to you, Haley, but to be a little bit harsh on when I hear and interact with covenantalists on this is there's a little bit of a bait and switch with the nation as a nation versus just the ethnic people. So I I think you're going to find like when you look at three views on Israel and and the that book that's on three views that most covenantalists will see ethnic Jews, but they're making a distinction distinction between a recovery of a nation politic, a civil society, and they're trying to say God's fulfilling his promises by recovering a saved group of people from that ethnic group that's part of the church. I don't think anyone in Jeremiah's day would have thought that that's a legitimate answer to the promises of God. And that's actually my point on hermeneutics that we'll look at next week is is that's, I think that's dirty. That's why I would not be a covenantalist, is because I think hermeneutically that's not only sloppy, that's an inappropriate use of language. And I'm speaking, I'm speaking very firmly here. If I had a covenantal guy, I'd be a lot more gentle. Um, but, but for sake of clarity, like when you look at these national promises to a, a um, not just ethnic, right? It's not just that they're related to Abraham, they're a civil society, they're, 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 uh, they have armies, they have politics, they have legislative stu- legislative stuff through the Mosaic Covenant. All of that stuff is ignored in, in, generally speaking, the idea of just an ethnic Jewish person being saved. And I think that's not, that's not doing justice to what I would see as the New Covenant demands. Does that make sense? But, but you're right. I, I sometimes can speak loosely or quickly and not do justice to the opposing side. I don't want to do that. All right. We need to end, so if you have more questions and you want to keep cornering me and stoning me, please, we'll have a pile of stones out back. Let's pray and be done. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would give us a uh, sensitive heart to your spirit, that you would help us to understand your promises. Lord, we recognize while good and godly people differ about how they approach and understand your scriptures. We can disagree without assuming either we are more godly or they are less. Lord, I pray that you give us a spirit of humility. Help us to stand under your scriptures and listen to the voice of your king as he speaks through his word so that the law of Christ might move us and shape us and make us faithful to the king. Lord, I pray for this morning as we listen to the word as it will be preached later As we hear it read together as a congregation, as we sing its truths as a group of people who have been redeemed by your son, I pray that you would get glory and honor, that you would use the worship today, the music, the praying, even the fellowshipping together uh, to conform us to the image of our beloved king. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.